Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Hi, it's really great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. And everyone is welcome in our church family. You've joined us. We're in week six of our study. It's called Amazing Grace. You've heard already. It's an exploration, an in-depth look at this first century biography that was written about Jesus by one of his closest friends. And today I have titled this message, The God Who Gives You Wings. That's the promise of this message. Now, some of you may be sort of thinking, that sounds a little bit familiar to a particular advertising campaign by Red Bull um, some years back. Red Bull, the energy drink that gives you wings, right? What you may not know about that is that actually they were sued for that campaign because it didn't promise what it was said to deliver, not in the sense that you might be thinking that there was somebody out there who genuinely thought they were going to grow wings, uh, but actually that it turns out it doesn't have as much caffeine in it as an ordinary cup of coffee. And the legal powers that be out there felt that that was a, a false bit of advertising. Now, I want to start by saying, when I say the God who gives you wings, that God wants to give you wings, I'm not trying to kind of trick you or deceive you. He's not going to disappoint you in that sense. He's not genuinely going to make you sprout wings uh, physically this morning. It's not weird stuff like that. But he wants you to spiritually fly. That's his heart. That's his heart for you. That's what we're exploring today. And we're going to look at what really is the Christian faith. What is it actually all about? And I want to begin by telling you that Christianity may not be what you've thought it was, what you've been told. See, a lot of people would say um, that the Christian faith is just the same as any other pretty much belief system or religion that's out there. I include in my definition of belief system and religion, atheism and agnosticism. Come talk to me if you want to disagree about that at the end of the service. Um, And Christianity, they put it in the same category as all these other sort of religions and say it's primarily about helping people be more moral, however you want to define that, helping people behave better in society. That's not the primary purpose of religion. It is a positive byproduct of the Christian faith, but it's not what Christianity is essentially about. It's not. And I want to show that to you today. It's not about mere improvement, but radical redemption. Let me use the words of Professor C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes. He was an atheist. Uh, In his 30s, he became a believer in Jesus. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He's an Oxford professor. He's a a guy with a serious intellect. He says this, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of person. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, Once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. I wonder if you're here today and you're just feeling really worn out, exhausted, 
weary with life? Could it be you're like a horse, struggling just to keep jumping higher and higher at what in life? To be successful, whatever you say that is. To be a good person in whatever definition that you have of that. Maybe you're chastising yourself because you just want to jump, jump, jump higher, do better, work harder. God wants to give you rest, a sense of peace, because for me, I've tried that life. I'm talking about myself. You know, I've never flogged a dead horse, okay, just to put that out there. <laughs> um, but it feels like I'm flogging this dead horse, like to try harder, work harder, do more. But it just doesn't work. Without God, it's exhausting. With God, it's exhilarating. Now, I've said, if you've been familiar with this series that we've been doing, that John uses a lot of Isaiah. So underneath is this Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, and he's referring a lot to him to sort of inform his writing. And I think really that's running underneath a lot of what John's writing is Isaiah chapter 40, which is the hinge point in his 66 chapter prophecy that he wrote. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, we, we, we discover this. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on, what? on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. Don't you want that? Don't you long for that kind of life, of ease and of grace, to fly? As a kid, I always wanted to fly. I would like jump off things like this kind of height and sort of jump out and think I could fly. And it would be disaster, pain, uncomfortable, you know, all of that sort of problem. But here we're genuinely being invited. You'd be invited to be able to fly free from exhaustion, free from pain and strain of trying to prove yourself to others. So let's look a little bit at the context of this chapter. Let's go back particularly for those who maybe weren't here. Uh, last week we finished John chapter 2. And we said chapter 2 is in two halves. Essentially the first half introduces us to God's crazy kindness. Here is the first miracle. What is it that God chooses to reveal what he's like through his first miracle? It's turning water into wine at a wedding. The wedding in Cana. All of the stories, 22 stories in John's biography, they have a geographical location because he's a first-hand eyewitness to what's taking place. If you read the Gnostic Gospels, which are written a lot, lot later, which aren't part of the Bible, you'll discover they've got almost no geography in them whatsoever. This is a reliable account. And we see God's crazy kindness showing up. Extraordinary kindness. A wedding is about to shamefully come crashing to a halt. And he doesn't want that to happen. He wants the joy to carry on, to continue. That's God's heart. So he creates, what, just a little bit of wine? No, 600 to 1,000 bottles of wine. It's phenomenal. Top-notch wine. To keep the celebration going, that's his heart. And what does the wine symbolize? His blood shed on the cross. The Last Supper. The broken bread and the wine which represents his blood. That, that's the whole significance of it. Abundance, mercy and grace and love, forgiveness. It's the first half of chapter 2. The second half, we meet God's righteous anger. He comes to cleanse the temple. And we looked at how anger flows from what you love being damaged or harmed. And we said, what is it that 
Jesus, God is so angry about getting hurt and harmed. Well, we said it's his church, it's his bride, it's you, if you believe, the true temple. And he wants all the rubbish out. So nothing will get in the way for you to have access to God, to himself, his own presence. So he's angry about all these people that are trying to sing the good news music of God, but appallingly out of tune. And he's just like, I want that out. Get it out. So that the truth about him can be really known. That's the context. And now Jesus gets to meet with one of the leaders who is permitting that to happen. A man called Nicodemus. And he is the embodiment of what it means to be religious. Shuddery, ortery, do this, don't that. Live your life by rules, right? And we're going to look at him in two parts. First, the darkness of self-salvation. And then we'll look at the light of God's love. So firstly, the darkness of self-salvation. Nicodemus comes at night. Why is he doing that? Surely it's because he fears what other people think about him. What will these other members of the Jewish council, what what, what will they think? He's curious. There's something special about Jesus. He's not quite sure what it is, but he doesn't want anybody else to know that he's a little bit interested because they might judge him. They might look down on him for, for doing that. We're not meant to associate with this strange, crazy leader, Jesus. And maybe you're here and that's how you feel right? I was invited to this dedication service. I kind of felt like I had to come because it would be rude not to um, or come to church. But I, I feel like I'm, or maybe I'm curious, but I don't want to admit that I'm curious about Jesus because that wouldn't be cool. And I, I care too much what other people think about me. There's something more though that John is doing in this. Because whenever he talks about light and darkness, he uses it metaphorically as well. And what he's saying is that Nicodemus, this man of religion, is coming in spiritual darkness to Jesus. And Jesus will draw that out in the passage and he will say to this well-respected religious man, he'll say to him, verse 3, you cannot see, you're blind. You cannot even see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 10, he says, "You you don't understand. Yet you're so religious in your own eyes. Wow. I wonder if you've ever had moments in life that you felt were just completely wasted. I'll never get that time back. I have to do that all over again. For me, those were moments when I was studying. Um, I am old enough to remember the days of floppy disks. Anybody else? Floppy disks? Yeah. And that's how we used to save our work. You, know, you don't have to do this now. The cloud didn't exist, but you have a floppy disk. And if you weren't geeky, you didn't carry a protective wallet for this floppy disk to walk around in. So the danger was that you, you could slide the top part of it, and there's a little sort of disk underneath that. And if you put your fingers on it, or if that happens in your bag, you lose all your data. It's gone. Basically, you've lost everything. It's not backed up anywhere else. It's just on the disk. And you have to do all your work again, over again. It's like, oh, wasted. Oh, no. Some of you young people are like, what? (laughs) Um, Worse than that, though, in my first year of law school, um, 
we had a jurisprudence assignment. That's all about the philosophy of law. Now, fortunately, in the first year at the law school I was at, it didn't count towards your final degree mark. You only had to pass. Basically, and this was the big assignment, the big essay. What you did in that really reflected how well you did in the first year. You only had to pass. They didn't count towards the second and third years. But for me, it was like, I want to show them how great I am. I'm gonna, I, wanna, I want them to see that I'm a really clever student, that I'm made for great things in the future. So I worked so hard on this essay. And I was waiting quite like proudly, as you can probably tell, for the mark to come back. Right? And I'm there waiting for the mark to come back. And what do I get? 52. <gasps> 50 was a pass. I have just barely passed. What is the comment on this paper? On its own terms, this is an outstanding essay. Unfortunately, it doesn't answer the question that was set. You have that, you have that moment when you're sort of realizing like, oh no, they're right. I was just so excited about talking about that, I didn't even notice it wasn't really what they were asking. That gives you some idea of how Nicodemus feels, but on a much bigger scale. Jesus is coming to him, this older, experienced rabbi, and is saying to him, the ladder that you have been climbing all your life is leaning up on the wrong wall. And that moment, like, there would be shock, outrage, anger in him. I know what it's like to feel like that because it happened to me when I was 21 years old. And Jesus God came and pretty much said the same thing to me. Howard, you've missed the point of life so far. Oh, wow, did that hurt. <laughs> that hurt my pride. That bruised my ego. It was humbling. But because I was humbled, I was able to see that he wanted me to be born again by the Spirit. Jesus comes to deal with Nicodemus's pride. He comes to do with your pride, because pride blinds us. It stops you from seeing reality. C.S. Lewis, you can tell he's a hero because I quote uh, of mine because I, I quote him far too much. But he calls pride the great sin. He called it a spiritual cancer, which is interesting. I'll just say this: in a culture that has turned the word pride into a virtue, into a marketing campaign. I think you know what I'm talking about. You know, I did a master's in human rights. I care about the oppressed. I want to fight for minorities, right? But I just want to observe that pride has been redefined. It was a great sin. This is what C.S. Lewis says. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man, a proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you that raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say that they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious, very positively Christian? I am afraid it means, he says, they are worshipping an imaginary God. Pride blinds you to the truth. Pride blinds you from 
recognizing how bad you actually are and thinking that you're way better than you actually are. Pride uh, provokes in you an envy and a comparison with others. You know, it's kind of that Instagram, I want their life, or thank you so much that I'm not like them. Um, it chastises yourself. There's an inverted pride. You kind of beat yourself up and go on self-attack because inside you know you should be better than everybody else and <laughs> being successful. So you're going to flog yourself to death in that sense that you can show the world how great that you are. Pride is also really secretive, defensive, wants to hide its faults, doesn't want anyone to know, wants to live in the shadows because it fears what other people might think. It fears a damage to reputation. Do you recognize any of this? Nicodemus, verse 1, he's called a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees, if you don't know, they were known for their phenomenally strict obedience to like this inner circle of Old Testament law. But they added to that a wider, larger outer circle around that, which was man-made rules that they'd created so that they would not get even close to breaking the original laws of God. And they obeyed all of this stuff super, super dutifully, so proudly, so piously that they thought they were spiritually great. And if anybody else didn't, they look at you so inferior. We're the best. We were, we're, we're so morally and spiritually superior to all all of you other unworthy types. They looked down on Jesus so much that they called him the friend of sinners. It was a mocking term. He's, oh, what a rubbish person. He's a friend of sinners. He hangs out with tax collectors, prostitutes. The New Living Translation translates what they say about them, that they called them scum. They looked down on them so much. These Pharisees, they arrogantly thought they could earn their way into God's goodness, that they could work their way by being good people to climb up the ladder towards God, that they were worthy of that. And this sadly often invades the church too. Phariseeism can come into our hearts, it can come into the church. There was a study done in 2013 by Barna, a very reliable um, uh, statistical kind of research base. Uh, they did it in America, and they found out that 51% of American Christians are more Pharisee-like than Christ-like. Ouch. Now, you might be thinking, like I was, that's so true, <laughs> those American Christians, mile-wide, inch-deep, all of that sort of stuff, well, you're proud if you're doing that. You're judgmentally looking down on them from this position of full superiority. We're all guilty of this. Truth be told, we all want to scold people who say things we don't like. We all want to shut them up, shut them down. Don't let them say that. They disagree with me. I don't like them having a platform to speak. It's going on all the time. It's very overt. It's on Twitter. I think there's a few, few up here that I've got. Of, there you go. It's called cancel culture by people who would claim, I'm not religious. You are so religious. How dare you? You can't speak that. You can't say that. You, I'm in control. I have the right to tell you what rules you should obey and what you should think. And oh, Whoa! Right? We're all guilty of this. Pride resides in every one of us. Everyone is religious. You know, there are vast numbers of people today 
who don't think that they need saving. I'll put it this way, they don't think they have a pride problem that they need saving from. And they kind of would say things like this, and they've often said this to me when I talk to them, they'll say, I'm not a bad person, Howard. I'm just not. I'm not, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not a murderer. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a pedophile. I'm not that bad a person. Right? If you're reasoning like that, you're what we would call a moralist. And moralists say that there's this moralism scale like this. So over on this side, you have the really good people. Gandhi's here. Mother Teresa is over here. My wife Holly is over here. <laughs> and then at this end, at the other end of the, the moralism spectrum, you've got all the bad people. You've got Hitler over here. Vladimir Putin may be over here at the moment. And you've got Arsenal fans as well over there. <laughs> Except for King. Um, sorry, it's a joke, by the way. And everyone else is in the middle somewhere. And you would be saying, like, I am going to work out where I am, and I'm going to decide where I fit on this scale. But you're inevitably going to be on the right side of where you draw the line so that this is, I'm part of the accepted people. I'm going to make sure I'm not part of the rejected people. I know I'm no Mother Teresa, but I know I'm just about safe over here, right? That's so judgmental. All those people over there are like, you are so proud, you're so arrogant to think that you're on that side and not over here with us. Wow. Christianity offers a much humbler approach. It says, we're all in the same boat. Christianity is the foundations of absolute equality. You may not know this, it's a virtue in our society. That's it's biblical. Without the biblical basis for it, we're lost. Number one is that we're all made in the image of God, therefore we are equal. Number two is we all get saved the same way. We're all in need of salvation. We all must be born again. We all must be rescued from the poison of pride of thinking you don't need saving or thinking that you're good enough to save yourself. We all need rescuing from this. We all need help. We're all infected by pride. And so the game of goodness we have to recognize is not played horizontally, it's played vertically. And the most holy human person barely gets to the top of this ceiling and God is right out to the very edges of the universe up through our kind of space stratosphere solar system. He's way beyond in his holiness. You can't get there on your own. C.S. Lewis said this, in God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself in comparison you do not know God at all. Do you know God like that? Or do you not know God at all? There's an opportunity to really know him. This biography is an invitation to know and be known by God. And the second point is exactly that, is that we would see the light of his love. The second point then. Jesus comes with three waves of truth. Like there's a wave and another wave and another wave again. And they come with his words and his language of truly, truly. 
or verily, verily, amen, amen, he's saying. And there's, there's these waves of truth. And each one comes a little bit further up the shore of our hearts to wash away all of our sin, all of the proud lives that we, we've, we've believed about God, ourselves, or others. And he uses extraordinary language. He uses the same Greek word twice. Truly, truly, or verily, verily. And he uses that at the start, not at the end of what he's saying. And in the ancient world, if you did that, you were basically saying, I've got first-hand knowledge of what I'm saying. More than that, I so know what I'm saying. This is my truth. I'm, I'm the originator of what I'm telling you here right now. When he says, truly, truly, I tell you this, he's basically saying, I am God. I'm speaking with the authority of God. And he's saying, my truth has come to set you free. What particular truth? I'm free from what? Well, the truth he wants to set you free from is what we've been talking about. Pride and thinking that you can earn your way. You have to work hard to beat yourself up to be good enough for God. Have that up and down of how you relate to him depending on how well you've behaved this week as a believer. He wants to free you from all of that so that you would rest in his love. You don't have to perform to save yourself. Jesus, again and again in this passage, makes it abundantly clear. Salvation is by faith, not works. It's by what you believe. Verse 15, those who believe will receive eternal life. Verse 16, those who believe will not perish. If we go back to chapter 1, we see there in verse 12, it says, for those who believe in the name of the Lord, he will give them the right to become children of God. Again, this metaphor and picture of being born again. Becoming children of God. It's through faith. But Nicodemus is like, how? Verse 9, did you notice that? He's just like, but how? He gets completely stuck on the how. How can this happen? Isn't that us that we get stuck on the how? How, how God, did you make the world? How God, uh, you, is Jesus the eternally begotten son? How did this happen? How are you going to do that? How does that, how, how is it all going to work in the future? And Jesus comes in verses 10 and 13 says, you've got the wrong question. It's not how, it's who. And he redirects Nicodemus and he'd redirect you to say, you need to know who I am. And he says, I'm the one who's come down from heaven. And he's already indicated it with the authority with which he speaks. He's making a direct claim. If you know who I am, that I am God, here in the flesh, it'll change everything. You'll know nothing is impossible for me. You don't need to worry about the how when you know me. And then he begins to unpack some of the how. And now it's even more extraordinary because we know this is not simply a human being, but this is God talking. And he goes back and he refers to a passage from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21. The story of when the people of God had been bitten by the poison of pride. And they were impatient. They were grumbling. They were moaning. We deserve better in life than this kind of thing. And they were dying as a result of that. And God called Moses and he said, make a, make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. And then when you walk around and hold that up, anybody who has faith to look upon that, they will be healed. And they were. And Jesus then accurately predicts his own death and he says, I'm going to be like that serpent. 
I'm only the one who's going to be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross, for all to see. Whoever looks upon me, whoever believes upon me, whoever trusts in me that I am dying for their sin, for their wrongdoing, I'm taking the punishment that they deserve, they will be healed. Their pride will be gone. They will be reborn in the blood waters of my love. There'll be a new creation. The old will have gone and the new will have come. They'll be taken out of the line of Adam and put into the line of Jesus Christ and my family. They no longer have to be defined by the past anymore. That is not there to affect them. They are a new creation, a beloved child of God. That is the context of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son who I should say also willingly gave himself so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What an offer. Whoever. Did you notice that word? Whoever. Again. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you're like, however bad or good you think you are, this is available to you. Whoever if you believe simply by faith. But to those who choose not to believe, they condemn themselves. And Jesus honors that choice to perish forever apart from him and all that is good. To be consumed by your pride forever. But look at the love in this passage. For God so loved the world. God so loved. This love is impenetrably secure, immeasurably strong, extraordinarily safe. The nature, the quality of this love, it cannot be undone, it cannot be broken. Nicodemus is right. He's saying it's ridiculous in the natural world for, for a child to go back into their mother's womb to sort of be pushed back up the birth canal. That's just weird. It doesn't happen in nature. And it doesn't happen in the spiritual world either. And that's what God is trying to make absolutely clear to us. He's saying this is of the will of God. Chapter 1, verse 13, someone who's born again is of the will of God. It's not a will of a human being, of their own decision. That's too wibbly-wobbly and uncertain. He says, no, it's in the certain will of God that you are born again. Then he says, the Spirit goes wherever he wills. It's, it's down to him, not down to you. This is God's choice, not even your own choice. If you choose him, it's a, a, a work of God that he's already done in your own heart. A child being born contributes nothing to that birthing experience. It's all happening to them, right? And the same is true in the Christian life. It all happens to you by the grace of God. And this is glorious good news because it means it can't be undone. You can't mess it up by your bad performance. If you have a bad day, it doesn't mean God loves you any less, right? It means you're safe. Because the whole nature of God's love is that nothing can break it. It's impossible. Nothing can separate a believer from the love of God. The love of God is the strongest force in the universe. It's so solid, so safe, so secure. And when you start to understand that, you start to change. And we get this so secure, safe, solid. And then you get the oh that flows out of that. Oh my. Oh wow. Oh God. This is incredible. I'm loved by you forever. 
someone has said that, well, no, revival is upon us when the church starts to say, oh, a little bit more often. Are you making time to look to Jesus? To the one who is lifted up, to lift you up out of your pride, out of your sin, out of your death, out of your discouragement, out of your despair? Are you looking to him? I think quite often for many of us in this reformed world, we would struggle to do that because in our minds we would have an empty cross. And there's great truth in that. I agree with that absolutely. The cross is empty. Jesus is raised in glory. He's victorious. But if we only see an empty cross, we won't fully understand the demonstration of God's love. That sometimes we need to look and see the Savior, the Lord God himself, suffering in agony on a cross to remember, oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he did that to me. Sometimes that should be our meditation. When we're looking and we're seeing that, wow. Are you here and you're not sure yet if you've been born again? That hand on heart, if you were to die today, you don't know with certainty what's going to happen to you. Look to Jesus. Believe on Jesus. He will receive you and you will be saved. I have five short points of application before we'll close. Uh, number one is just bring your questions to Jesus. That's what Nicodemus did. He welcomes them. I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. Whatever questions you've got, God loves them. Just bring them to him. Talk to, to, talk to Jesus about those questions. The second thing is as you look to Jesus, listen to Jesus. It's pretty straightforward, but it really helps if you read the Bible. And maybe you've lost your way with that, but I just encourage you, get reading the Bible every day and just meditate. God, what are you saying to me? He's speaking to you. And the moment that you open up the scriptures, you'll start to say, ah, I hear your voice. The third thing would be confess your sins. Confess your pride. Tell him, God, I'm sorry, I'm so proud. Be specific. Knowing 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number four, dwell on the so love of God. Think about it. Let it be your focus. This is what he did for me. Oh, how he loves me. And that will propel you to love others with the same love that you receive from him. And then number five, five, is stop trying so much in the flesh and be more trusting of the spirit be a person who waits for God to move be a person who listens be a person who abides be a person who draws close this is a time for us I believe to do a lot less rowing in the flesh and a lot more sailing in the spirit. The spirit is called the wind here. And if you feel exhausted, if you feel worn out, if you feel weary, it just may be that you've been doing a lot of rowing in the flesh, in your own strength. And today I'm here by God to encourage you, hoist your sail. Let the wind of the spirit lead you. Let him guide you. And if you do that as individuals, if we do that as a church, we will fly.
in these days in which we've been living, I felt God speak to me, and you might have guessed I'm a Star Wars fan. And I felt like God was saying to me that the start of my ministry here as a leader was a bit like episode four, A New Hope. At least it was for me. It felt like this is exciting, this is a bit new. We're seeing lots of breakthrough and progress and all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly COVID came and it was like the empire strikes back. And it's been like that, for it feels like, for some time. And it's been hard and difficult what we've been through. It's been a tough season. But I feel like we're coming to the end of that. And now it's about to be Return of the Jedi. We're in this in-between space where God is being Borning, borning again, but he's rebirthing us as a church and as a people to be like this movement, return of the Jedi for a fight back, but we are renewed in spirit and zeal because we know him more intimately, because we're now more dependent upon him. We're now more operating in the power of the spirit than we were in the flesh, and we are ready to make a difference in this nation. That, I believe, is the time that we're in. God is for us, and he is for his church. And if he's for us, who can be against us, right? Anybody else with me? There's a few nods this morning. It's like, yeah. <laughs> this is what it's about. We want to make a difference in our generation. We want to see hundreds get saved. We want to plant churches. We want to see the poor helped and alleviated. That's the heart. That's the vision. And God is on the move. And through this time of crisis, he's been rebirthing us. And right now we're in the womb of the Spirit and He's getting ready for us to be born into this world to make a massive, glorious, loud, crying expression of praise for His glory. Let's pray. Let's respond to Him. Lord, we thank You so much that You love us this much. That You would come down from heaven to die on a cross to experience all of the judgment for our sin, for our pride for how we so judgmentally look down on others, for our envy and for our greed, for making life all about ourselves and putting ourselves at the center of everything. Lord, forgive us and cleanse us. Set us free from this exhausting tyranny of trying to prove ourselves, trying to earn our way. Lord, and help us just to rest today. Help us just to rest and to breathe in and to drink deep of your love that you so loved the world, that you so loved us, that you would die, and all we have to do is look to you and believe, and we are healed. Oh God, come in these moments. Help us to be amazed by you. Help us to stand amazed at Jesus and to say, oh wow, oh my, oh God, you are awesome. Come by your spirit as we worship you. Help us to glorify your name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.